Thanks so much for joining for another episode of Run the List, a medical education podcast designed by Dr. Naveen Kumar, an attending gastroenterologist at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Emily Gutowski, a Harvard medical student planning on going into internal medicine, and Dr. Walker Red, myself, an internal medicine resident here at Brigham and Women's Hospital. As a quick disclaimer, this podcast is meant for informational and educational purposes only. It should not be understood as medical advice under any circumstances. Welcome back to Run the List. My name is Emily Gatowski, and I'm a fourth-year medical student at Harvard Medical School. Today, I'm here with Zaid Almarzouk, a second-year cardiology fellow at Brigham and Women's Hospital. We're going to be discussing chest pain, and because this is such a large topic, we're actually going to be splitting it up into two separate episodes. For this first episode, we'll be introducing the case. We'll talk about how to think about chest pain and how to define acute coronary syndrome, what are the questions to ask on exam, as well as the differential diagnosis for chest pain. In the second episode, we'll be talking more about diagnostic testing, treatment and management, and some of the clinical pearls to take with you. First, a little bit of background about Zaid. He earned his medical degree from the Royal College of Surgeons in Ireland and completed his internal medicine residency at Cornell, where he also served as chief resident. He's well known in the hospital for being a fantastic medical educator. He's also an active member of the board of directors of the National Residency Matching Program. He's an avid equestrian show jumper and enjoys playing soccer in his spare time. Thank you so much, Zaid, for joining us. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me here. So without further ado, let's go ahead and run the list. So our case today is a 70-year-old woman named Mrs. E, who has a known history of coronary artery disease with a prior end STEMI status post-drug-eluting stent to the left anterior descending artery three years ago. Her past medical history is notable for hyperlipidemia, hypertension, and type 2 diabetes, and she's presenting to the ED with new chest pain at rest. She tells you that she was at home playing cards with her husband when she felt substernal pressure. She's had this type of chest pain before, but usually it's only with activity and it typically resolves with rest. Now, however, it's persistent. She describes the pain as 6 out of 10, and it's gradually worsening. She's also experiencing sweating and slight nausea. At home, she has a stash of sublingual nitroglycerin, and she took one. Her pain did immediately improve, but after a few minutes, it came back with the same intensity. Her husband called 911, and EMS got an EKG en route to the ED. In the ambulance, she was febrile with a heart rate of 45, a blood pressure of 152 over 90, a respiratory rate of 20, and oxygen saturation of 94% on room air. Her medications include aspirin, atorvastatin, metoprolol, isosorbide mononitrate, lisinopril, and metformin. On arrival to the ED, she is diaphoretic and in mild distress. Her cardiac exam is notable for a regular rate and rhythm with normal S1 and 2 and no murmurs. She has normal breath sounds bilaterally and no lower extremity edema. So this is a very interesting case for a lot of reasons, but before we get into the details of working up Mrs. E, what exactly is ACS or acute coronary syndrome? Yeah, it's always important to go back to the basics. And I think acute coronary syndrome is an umbrella term that encompasses ST elevation myocardial infarctions, non-ST elevation myocardial infarctions, and unstable angina. But more importantly, it's important to know that there are multiple types of myocardial infarctions. And there's a guideline that people refer to as the universal definition of myocardial infarctions. It was recently updated in 2018. And it really has multiple different types of MIs based on the mechanism of how the MI occurs. The one that's relevant to you is type 1 MIs, and that is due to plaque erosion or rupture. Once you're in that bucket of diagnoses, you begin to use the EKG to sort of stratify, is it an ST elevation MI or is it a non-ST elevation MI? Then the next step is once you've made that diagnosis, you've determined that it's a non-ST elevation MI, 
You're saying, I don't need to rush them to the cath lab, but I can risk stratify them. You need to further, first of all, determine, do they even have a non-SD elevation? And like the EKG doesn't have SD elevations. So in that case, you're going to look at biomarkers and you're going to look for troponin elevations. If the troponin is elevated, great, you've got a non-SD elevation in line. If not, then you fall into the category of unstable angina. Regardless, all of them require your urgent attention and treatment. Now, what's important is that the troponin tests have changed over time. So as they get more and more sensitive with our recent high-sensitivity troponin, we're now diagnosing much lower levels of troponin elevations. And a lot of those previously diagnosed unstable angina are now categorized as non-SD elevation MIs. Great. So a lot of patients who come into the emergency room with chest pain end up having something that isn't ACS. How do you think about patients with chest pain and how do you kind of put them into different buckets? I think it's important to first clarify what we mean by chest pain. Given that the first thing that clinicians think of when they say chest pain, they usually refer to ACS. But I'd say typical angina chest pain is not a novel idea. It's a concept that's been well described by William Heberdeen as early as the 18th century. He's an English physician, and he first described it as a painful sensation under the left breast, usually with a bit of a strangling sensation, anxiety, and occasional radiation to the left arm. He also observed that it tends to worsen with exertion and is relieved by rest. Much of this has been validated later, and we now refer to this as typical anginal symptoms. Now, keeping this in mind, I would urge you to use a more systematic approach of asking questions and so forth, which would ultimately sort of lead to your differential diagnosis that's going to be very important in determining what tests to order. Great. So speaking of questions to ask, what are some of the most important questions to ask on history? And what are some of the red flags to look out for when you're evaluating a patient with chest pain? Yeah, I'd like to, I usually like to walk through this systematically. And regardless of what mnemonic you use, I've been taught during med school to use the acronym SOCRATES when assessing any form of symptom. And SOCRATES refers to site, onset, character of the pain, radiation, associated symptoms, which usually refer to the system that you're assessing. So in this case, cardiovascular symptoms and pulmonary symptoms, and then the time course or duration of the symptoms, E for exacerbating and relieving factors, and then severity. Once you've asked those questions, then I would go ahead and ask about risk factors associated with the differential diagnosis that you have at hand. And those include demographics, behavioral factors, family history, and that's going to help guide your differential diagnosis. Using that information, you're going to look for red flags. And those red flags include things like, how does it start? If it's very sudden, then you're thinking of acute aortic syndromes like dissections or even pulmonary embolus or a pneumothorax versus this gradual worsening pain that you see with ACS. The other thing is character. So dull pain, you think ACS. If it's sharp, you're thinking less likely ACS. And then I'd say the last thing is the exacerbating and relieving factors tend to be very important. And that's because if it's positional, if it's pleuritic where it's worsened by breathing, those are less likely ACS and more likely due to another diagnosis versus the usual exertional chest pain that you see with coronary artery disease in general. But in ACS, they usually have a history of it. Great. So as is the case with a lot of things in medicine, so much of the diagnosis is in the right questions that you ask on history. So with all of that information in mind, how do you think about risk stratifying someone when they come in with chest pain in regards to their odds of having ACS? As I get all the information I asked for, I begin to sort of categorize it. What increases my likelihood of thinking this is ACS and what decreases my likelihood of thinking this is ACS? And I'd say in the bucket of what would lower the probability of ACS, I think of pain that is pleuritic, positional, reproducible on palpation, or even sharp in nature. Things that would increase it, I'd say, are usually the typical anginal symptoms, where it's radiant to the left jaw and arm, it's exertional, 
or was exertional, and then usually nausea, vomiting, and diaphoresis tends to be associated with it. Now, it's important to know that when we say low risk, doesn't mean the patient is completely ruled out. And it's extremely important to know that you should be looking for other life-threatening causes. Now, the other thing I'd say is that some patients tend to have atypical symptoms, and those include women, patients with diabetes, elderly patients, and then finally, heart transplant patients that we're more commonly seeing now. And what kinds of symptoms would those populations have? It's quite interesting because there are a variety of different symptoms. Like I recently saw a patient in the emergency room with actually upper abdominal pain, and that was her symptom. And it was only when we got the EKG and eventually a troponin did they note that the, there was something wrong. And I'd say patients with heart transplants and so forth, due to the denervation of the heart, may or may not have chest pain. So it's important to know that you have to have a high suspicion, index of suspicion, to, to really find the diagnosis in these patients. So we talked about some of the questions to ask and some of the risk factors for ACS. On physical exam, what are some of the signs that we should be looking out for? I'd say one of the most important aspects of the physical exam is to immediately, once you walk into the patient's room and introduce yourself, is to identify the acuity of what's going on. Is the patient sick? Are they really in shock? Have we misinterpreted the history? Because nothing can replace a thorough exam. And I'd say the first thing I usually do is I observe the patient from the end of the bed. And there I'm looking at how the patient's reacting and how they look. I then walk over and check the radio pulse. And that's extremely informative. Because checking the radio pulse, not only in one arm, but both arms, allows you to identify any discrepancy in the, in, in the character of the pulse, which may signal or hint towards another diagnosis like aortic dissections. The other thing that's important as well is if the patient's pulse is pretty slow, then you begin to think, do they really have an MI? And if so, it may allude to the fact that they may have an MI related to an occlusion of the right coronary artery, which supplies the AV node, but also has some blood supply to the SA node as well. And a lot of these patients tend to have some more of a vagal response, which tends to lead to bradycardia as well. The second thing I'd say is looking at the JVP. And that tends to be very hard to assess and requires time to develop that skill. But I'd say it's important because it gives you a sense of what the patient's volume status is. And if it's truly due to ACS, a lot of these patients will have some degree of ventricular dysfunction and will begin to build up some fluid, especially if it's been brewing over some time. The next thing is heart murmurs are going to be very, very important. And the reason I mention this is because if the patient truly has an MI, the last thing you want is for them to have a complication of their myocardial infarction. And those include acute mitral regurgitation due to papillary muscle rupture, ventricular septal defect of VSD, or even a free wall rupture with cardiac tamponade, where the heart sounds are going to be quite muffled. And those are very important to identify early because the patient may require urgent surgery. And then I'd say you'd move on to lung sounds. And there, it's not necessarily because you're looking for any cardiac causes. But I'd say one of the most important things you're trying to do, even as a cardiologist, is to make sure that you haven't missed a diagnosis that's non-cardiac. And in this case, you want to listen for decreased breath sounds that may point towards a pneumothorax. And that can be, especially if it's a tension pneumothorax, the diagnosis is going to be critical. And then you can feel over the chest. And there, you're looking for reproducible chest pain due to costochondritis that may mimic these symptoms. Finally, I'd say it's very important to get your own vitals, especially the blood pressure. And when you're there at the bedside, as everything's going on, this tends to be missed, and that is checking blood pressure in both arms. And what you're looking for is a discrepancy in the blood pressure of more than 20 millimeters of mercury. And that is an indicator that you should be looking for an acute aortic syndrome like a dissection. Now, using this information, you're going to narrow down your differential diagnosis. And if it's truly ACS, determine if there are any important complications that will dictate how you proceed further. So now that we've spoken to and examined the patient, we're going to want to get some diagnostic tests. 
But before delving into those, what are some of the diagnoses that we're thinking about when we have a patient with chest pain? What's on our differential diagnosis? So we've alluded to some of these diagnoses, and I'd say it's extremely important to think about the most severe cases, the ones you really cannot miss. And by thinking about them, you'll make sure you'll never miss them. Um, I like to think about them by systems. For me, I start off, obviously, with cardiac. I'm a bit biased. So starting off with acute coronary syndrome being at top of our list, as we start thinking, do they have EKG changes and so forth, I begin to think of more severe types of myocarditis, like giant cell myocarditis, cardiac tamponade. And then I think about vascular causes, like acute aortic syndromes. And these include aortic dissections, intramural hematoma, or even a penetrating aortic ulcer. These are especially important in patients with hypertension or other risk factors like a family history of it. I also think of pulmonary causes like pulmonary embolus, especially if it's a large pulmonary embolus, pneumothorax, especially if it's a tension pneumothorax that is time critical. And then the last category I think of is gastrointestinal, and those include esophageal ruptures. And that's especially important when the patient had recent instrumentation, either from a transesophageal echocardiogram or even an EGD. Now, more broadly, you can think of other causes or diagnoses like coronary vasospasm, hypertensive emergency, pericarditis, vasculitis, or even valvular heart disease like aortic stenosis, and then pulmonary arterial hypertension. And then finally, I'd say we talked about tenderness on palpation due to costochondritis. And that tends to be more of a diagnosis of ruling out because you really don't want to miss any of the other diagnoses. So just to recap, the four major systems to think about with can't-miss diagnoses are cardiac, vascular, pulmonary, and GI. So don't get caught into thinking this is definitely a heart problem when a patient comes in with chest pain. This is where we're going to end part one of the chest pain episode. We will continue with the diagnostic testing as well as management and some clinical pearls in our next episode, part two. Thanks for joining us to run the list.